Okay, hello everyone and welcome to episode 32 of Thelma and Tom Look Left. Um, I'm a little bit nervous today, we haven't had a podcast for a little while and, and I had a problem with the Zoom connection and that always completely does me in, but anyway, here we are and it's lovely to see you Thelma. Uh, in fact, it's a huge relief when I get a second <laughs> to, when it's sorted out, I kind of, oh my goodness, what an achievement. Anyway, there you are, lovely to see you Thelma, how are you? Yeah. Yeah, good to see you, Tom. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, we've had a few weeks um, break, haven't we? And loads of stuff been uh, been happening. Um, the thing that amused me um, this week, uh, this past week, was um, all the tweets from all the uh, Labour MPs talking about uh, Starmer's integrity. And if you remember our last podcast, um, we had some discussion about the importance of integrity. And, you know, if you haven't got it, then, you know, nothing, nothing is important after that. Um, and, um, and then, of course, they, um, they were obviously listening to us, Tom, and, um, and taking our advice from our little podcast. I um, think it's amazing, you know, that I, I, when I started this podcast with you, Thelma, I thought, you know, I, I thought we were doing something good, but I had no idea that we were in, in the end where we were going to actually... Uh, change things at the top of the new new labor uh, but yeah. I'm, I'm pleased they've taken it on board Selma, because yeah. you know and integrity is important yeah and it's quite interesting that they all those MPs were thinking the same thing at the same time which I thought was amazing I always find that astonishing how so many people come out with almost identical tweets I mean I suppose it does show that they are all singing from the same song sheet or whatever they call it uh but, you know, it's so pathetic, Thelma. I mean, I, I, it's it's beyond humour, really, uh, to watch this kind of... Oh, I, I get angry and I get upset sometimes because I know that the vast majority of people don't get to see how things are really are and how awful the people in charge really are. And that... I mean, that's kind of why we need things like Thelma and Tom and... Uh, Navarro and all of these yeah. alternative yeah. news it, outlets. Yeah. It's kind of calling it out and it's kind of giving giving that a different perspective and um and speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves as well. Uh, you know, and we might make lighter things and there is satire there, I know, but but you know, if you've got to explain our leader has integrity, etc when he's in a tricky situation, um, then, you know, if you didn't think your leader had integrity in the first place, what the hell are you doing serving on the front bench or, you know, even being a Labour MP? Um, so the fact you have to keep stating it um, reveals reveals so much. Um, but I just thought it was a bit of a coincidence that we'd been discussing the importance of integrity in our last podcast. So I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> 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 well, you know what's going to happen, though, don't you? It's straight away, as soon as I saw them doing it, and I just thought, OK, here they all are, banging on about integrity. They are so setting themselves up for a fall, because every time they make one, whatever the opposite of integrity is, remark <laughs> or behaviour, they're going to get that straight back in their face, aren't they? 
And, yeah. and that's the difference between saying you've got integrity and having integrity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. of course it is. And we know the track record over this last couple of years of broken, broken pledges and promises and um, not addressing treatment of some of his own MPs, especially female uh, MPs of colour. Um, you know, the, the, there's, there's definitely been double standards there. And, um, it, you know, when you talk about integrity, it's being consistent as well, isn't it? Um, and being consistent in your values uh, and your priorities. Um, so, yeah, it, I just thought it was really interesting. And, and which brings us on to the recent uh, local election results, which you had to search around mainstream media to actually get a full coverage, I thought, Tom. I don't know about you, but I, I was uh, looking around. On, on social media, you could you could get the data, and if you looked it up uh, and, and searched, but um, trying to find a true picture of what those results were in mainstream media was very, very difficult because you were getting the spin from Labour saying that they'd done marvellously well. Um, but when you actually unpick it, you can see that turnout was so low. Was it around 24%, I think, the final biggest? 24% turnout. Yeah. That's three quarters of the voting public that chose not to vote or just, you know, didn't, didn't bother. And um, you, you look at what the results actually were at a time when we've got this government. <laughs> I don't need to expand on that. No. But we've got this atrocious government and people are either not voting or you can see, just looking at the figures I've got in front of me, Lib, Lib Dems gained 192 seats, Independents 27, Greens 63 and Labour just 22. No. And it, it, that's in England. If you look at Wales, obviously we know that they've, under a socialist um, leader, that they've done extremely well but but in England that is is dire and you you look at they were you know they were showing off about having game Westminster Barnet and Wandsworth but then you look at the lost Harrow Tower Hamlets and Croydon even in London which they were talking about before the election as being you know there's going to be massive wins in London so you can see that people are aware of this lack of vision, lack of policy, um, and and just a pale imitation, really, of, of the Tories very often, and this abstaining on human rights bills, etc., um, is coming home to roost now, I believe, and that's why I'm I'm working so hard to coordinate and pull together our alliance of of people's alliance of the left because people are wanting somewhere else to go there's that political vacuum um and a special mention of course for Aspire in, in Tower Hamlets that got more more council seats than Labour altogether so that was an amazing victory uh, for Aspire as a brand new party um, I'm interested to see uh, what their next steps are. Um, so, yeah, quite amazing, those results, really. Yeah, um, what I found really interesting on that was the, the way the whole thing was so much spin. Like on the Friday, <laughs> we, we woke up on the Friday and it was like, oh, Labour are doing so well. By Friday night, Labour are doing really well. Uh, and then as the time went on and more and more of the actual results and the truth of the situation came out over the weekend it became clear that 
they they actually weren't doing well at all. They they were at best holding their ground, uh, mm. which they weren't even doing that really. If you take out the fact that Wales is really uh, a whole different thing, Welsh Labour Party is a yeah. whole different thing, uh, and and then if you look at things like um, Tower Hamlets, where that that was a classic example of of the left overturning a new Labour, really. Uh, from what I can make of it, I've studied it a bit. The the people know, like you say, they know that there's, they're not offering anything. They're they're really not. If if anything, you know, they they what's the use of 150 quid or 600 quid for people that have got nothing? That's just like a temporary stopgap. You know, okay, we can eat for a couple of weeks, and that's about all they're offering. They're not offering anything in terms of let's try and change. The, the way we run things so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. They, they, they don't go near any of that kind of stuff. And that's what the people want to hear. So as soon as the politician comes along who says, actually, we have got some ideas about how we can really improve things, the people are going to plug into it. And, yeah. and you're right. You can tell that PAL is People's Alliance is making headway because, well, I can tell on Twitter for a start. But I mean, it doesn't make headway in the mainstream media, but the mainstream media don't tell the truth. They don't, they're almost part, well, they're not almost, they are part of the con, really, as far as I can see. It's a long-term project. You see, Powell and the Alliance and the work that we're doing with these smaller parties, but it's growing. Um, and it's a long-term project, really, because I've got to confess, here in Kirklees and in Cone Valley, where I am, the Labour candidate, a young lad who's not really had a, a proper job before, um, has has won the council seat. And I'm, I'm not going to question or challenge um, local people voting um, for the candidate that they want. But the way I see it, this is a long-term project where what we're getting are candidates who, quite frankly, and it's looking like the same is going to happen for Labour in Wakefield by-election at national level, um, is they're almost like Starmer mini-me's, you know? <laughs> they're kind of, they, they're kind of a, a, a certain kind of individual who will toe the party line and and will not challenge and will just deliver the agenda and and not challenge the fact that they're abstaining on on these um, as I mentioned earlier human rights bills and uh, you know the uh, electoral commission and, and all of that they're, they're not going to challenge it um, and uh, the threats to our democracy the people who who will not say challenge the the council budget as as some councillors have done in, in Liverpool, for instance. So they are going to pe- be certain types of people that Starmer will want as candidates. And um, and that's that's what's happened um, in my local area. Um, and as I say, it's not for me to question that. I'm, I'm done with Labour, as you know. I, I'm, I'm wanting to work as, a, you know, as, and to help to uh, deliver uh, and build an alternative. Uh, which is true socialism, which is what our society is crying out for um, at the moment, um, for the very people you've just been talking about, Tom, uh, the most vulnerable, the people who are struggling now and, you know, tweaking tweaking how much they're going to pay on their energy bills coming from Labour 
um, and a one-off wealth tax is not going to cut it. <laughs> it's not going to help those people struggling. And there's so many of them struggling at the moment. So, you know, that I accept that's what's happened in my local area. We have, and you know what? I think Labour could win at, at the, nationally at the next election. But again, I think it'll be more of the same. And it will Thelma, not. they won't win. They won't win, Thelma. Not outright. There's not a chance. They might be the largest party, in which case they'll be looking for a coalition. I, uh, I think they plan to have a coalition with the Liberals personally. Yeah, I, I honestly do. I honestly think they're not panicking too much because I think they will have a coalition. If, it, if it's really close shot, they they will go in into a coalition with the Liberals. Yeah. And I think that's that's what we'll do. Um, but again, doesn't concern me because we need to build an alternative because it, it just proves my point if they're going to go in a coalition with the Liberals. And yeah, and I think if you think about it now, so, so I mean, I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but let's just give it, <laughs> give it a minute. Um, you know, if Labour go into coalition with the Liberals... Uh, uh, and you get a kind of, well, you'll just get Labour, basically, because the Liberals are almost Labour, but with just a few progressive things. I thought they were quite brave on their drugs policy, and they were quite brave uh, about... Um, They're more progressive than Labour in some yeah, ways. Oh, oh, absolutely. I would vote Liberal over Labour every day of the week, but in a coalition, they're not going to have any power, are they? Uh, um, I mean, look at the last time, they were pointless really um but that that's how many seats they get at the next ge though tom you know if you look at those local council elections it could be very interesting the next ge very very interesting Mm. indeed but it's those independents that gain those council seats i know council elections are different um than than uh, the general election but um it, it it will be and you know disaffection from from voters as well um it 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 will be very interesting, but the the low voter turnout is dire for democracy. It's absolutely awful, um, and I don't believe just putting it down to voter apathy is good enough. Because I do believe a lot of people are just saying there's just nobody on this ballot paper that represents me, and I'm choosing not to use my vote or spoil my ballot paper. Um, and I think that's dire, and so that's why Pal which I have to tell you, Tom, um, is is growing. Our group of, uh, you know, reps on the Power Alliance uh, and our open discussion group is growing uh, in membership. And um, we've, we've now got interest from, from other groups. And we have got councillors who have defected from Labour who, who are joining our discussions. And we're networking, we're sharing information, we're sharing policy, and uh, yeah, it's getting exciting. And um, and we we are planning to stand a candidate in the Wakefield by-election as well. Um, so we're we're be planning for that. Yeah, um, I think there's a really a really good vibe that comes off Powell Thelma. And I mean, I know I'm not involved apart from my friendship with you, really. But I I would vote for them every time. The the, the as far as I can see, everyone that's getting involved with Pal is very serious about, you know, going forward, working together, finding a way, all the positive things that we need 
on the left to bring it together. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you, you do come across the opposite of those things sometimes on the left. And it's so hard. You know, people yeah. are going, well, I can't do this because of that and this and that. I, you can't, you've got to be looking positive here. And and that comes off, pal. And I do think it is a, if it's going to happen, there's a very good chance that that's where the, you know, where it's all well, where it's happening, really. Well, I certainly hope so, Tom. And I think that, you know, even if it's kind of solidarity and a shared policy platform and uh, that mutual support in future elections, and not, it's not just about elections, though, is it? It's about that grassroots campaigning and uh, working with unions and, uh, and, and just being part of a movement, because that's the important thing. You know, the, the, what Labour seem to be doing is that brand, Labour brand, and... And, and, and banking everything on that Labour brand, whereas this is not a brand, this is a movement, you know? Huh. You know, um, the fact that the Labour Party didn't do so well in the local elections must make them, uh, and the fact that the other small parties did do very well, must make them wonder whether their move to the right is actually uh, a good idea. Um, you know, uh, they can't just keep going right, can they? That's uh, that's insane. So it, there is a slight chance that they might look at that and think, actually, we've probably gone a bit too far here. We're losing more people than we're gaining. And they might possibly uh, throw out a few olive branches to try and attract some of the left back in. I don't know. It's just a thing. But... Uh, mm. it, it, it looks pretty shot to me, the whole thing, the whole project. Well as I just said to you, Tom, the, the thing for me is that, you know, they can win in the future, but I'm about a movement. And um, for me, it's not party political now. It's it's about that um, socialism as a movement and uh, solidarity together and, and delivering the society, uh, you know, eco-socialism and the welfare state and all of those things that, that are missing for the vulnerable at the moment. And that's what's not being addressed by the two main parties. So um, for me, it's it's the bigger picture really in that strategic view of what kind of society do we want? Um, and it certainly needs to change at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, that, um, that, that's, that's it, Thelma. That's a great, great spot to end uh, the first part of our podcast. And, uh, and we'll move straight on to uh, welcome our guest, Meg Smith. Neither me nor Thelma <laughs> have met Meg before. Uh, Meg's a, um, part of a, the pressure group, Every Doctor, uh, which we're hopefully now we're going to find out all about. My first question to you, Meg, is going to be, can you just give us a bit of brief, brief background on Every Doctor, how it happened, why, and how it's going, uh, and so on, and when you started? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Every Doctor predates me joining it, actually. So it was established by, uh, there are three of us who are directors now. So we're a completely non-profit company, um, just limited by guarantee. And it was established by Julia Patterson and Georgina Wood, George, um, uh, about three years ago now. They had been very active um, kind of within medical politics for a number of years, really sort of culminating with the junior doctors strike that happened when Jeremy Hunt was the health secretary and it ultimately, and, and the BMA didn't really step up to the plate um, and, and help um, and ultimately kind of sold junior doctors off down the river. And so a number of junior doctors kind of got together um, and started to campaign. And out of that kind of 
nascent organization every doctor grew so julia and george eventually decided that they wanted to have an organization that that represented the interests of doctors both both junior doctors and senior doctors um, but also represents the interests of of our patients because they're at the very core of what we do they're at the heart of everything we do and there's a lot of overlap and crossover with other medical healthcare professionals as well so we collaborate with um, nursing organizations and other organizations too um, but essentially we are uh, pro nhs anti privatization healthcare is a is a is a human right or access to healthcare is a human right and it should be publicly funded it should be not for profit at any stage um, in its process of delivery um, and that's and that's ultimately what what we believe in and what we're what we're pushing for i joined about uh, it's now about two years ago. I was a member originally, initially. So when, when the junior doctor strike happened, I'd just been appointed as a consultant. And it's very easy to sort of, for medicine to become a bit polarised and for the slightly wrinklier older consultants to, because they have a slightly different set of interests, certainly. Um, and so a number of consultants were not that interested in the junior doctors. A classic kind of government approach is to try and divide and rule. And they mm. did that with the senior and junior doctors and they did it with doctors and nurses and they did it with different cohorts. You know, they do it across the board, not just in health. <laughs> They Meg, just coming in there, they do it in education as well. Absolutely, yeah. Basically, anywhere in the public sector, they, they do it. Um, they'll try and pit one side against the other, and, and often it works. Um, but the junior doctor strike was a bit, it was a bit different. Um, so I, I joined as a member, but I'd just become a consultant that felt very strongly that the junior doctors were being really uh, badly treated at that time by Jeremy Hunt and the government at the time. And then because I've got a slightly dark past in that I was a lawyer before I was a doctor. So I, I did law originally and practiced as a barrister for a few years um, and then went off to medical school. Uh, and that's what I do now for every doctor. So I'm um, head of legal and in-house counsel for, for every doctor. So I do a lot of helping members with, with issues that they're having. They're often employment law related things, but they're not always. They're sometimes regulatory, GP partnership disputes and other stuff that's going on in their lives. And also I work kind of on the policy side and liaising with with or working with Parliament, working with, working with parliamentarians um, and working on our campaigns. And that's real fun for me because I'm not a, I've never had real experience as a campaigner. But Julia and now we've got an employed team as well um, are really experienced in relation to those areas and George as well. So I'm kind of I'm teaching them some stuff from my line of, uh, you know, my kind of other area of experience. And they're teaching me a lot about campaigning and things. So it's it's real fun. It's real fun. Um, I'm a bit in awe of you, Meg, with a legal background and then a medical oh. background. It's kind of, uh, wow. Well, yeah, emerging. Yeah it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. It's really nice to be able to merge the two. Um, I mean, you know, so my, my background is that I, you know, I grew up in the Northwest in a, you know, mum and dad were both sort of first in their families to go to university. Um, you know, my grandparents on, you know, on one side were, well, granddad was a chef and on the other side grand, the other granddad worked in the the shipyards in in Middlesbrough so you know working class family basically um so there was nothing fancy I've got two younger sisters who are twins we went to the local comprehensive school mum and dad could no way they could afford to send us off to anything private but also that's kind of where my socialist roots come from because my mum and dad are both very very deeply socialist at their core and in fact yeah. when when Tony Blair altered the the um, you know the sort of the clause mm. back in uh, whenever it was that he did it. My mum sent her membership card back to him. Um, yeah. She was so unhappy with it. So so you know they're they're real 
you know, my dad has stood as a Labour councillor in Preston where I grew up. And I think, you know, when you when you grow up and you you, you kind of go off, like at my, at my comprehensive school, there's no way if I said to them, well, I'm trying to decide whether to be a barrister or a doctor, there's just, there's no way they would have said, oh, well, are you sure you want to be either of those things? They were just relieved, you know, because it was a pretty... I mean, it wasn't even an average comprehensive. It was a bit subpar, probably. But, you know, my mum and dad were always amazing with us. And, you know, we were incredibly lucky to have that home life and family life where they, they helped us get through, you know, and get a good education. But a lot of it came from them. And I think, you know, when I was kind of 18 and I thought, oh, I want to be this high-powered lawyer, I want to make loads of money. And, you know, I just watched... My dad always says that um, that I became a lawyer because I watched too much LA law and that I became a doctor because <laughs> I watched too much ER. And he just thanked God that I did everything with Father Ted. So... <laughs> Um, you know, but I think when you're 18 and you think, well, you know, I've worked hard and I've done all right and I'm getting into university and I'm, you know, I'm entitled to all this stuff. And it didn't take me very long, actually, to realise that that's just not how I tick. It's not what my values are. It's not it's not who I am. And actually, so I did a lot of kind of property sort of commercial type law. That was what I found intellectually interesting at university. But, you know, I spent the recession of the 1990s repossessing people's houses and making them bankrupt mostly. And I felt pretty awful about myself. Um, and it's hard once you started down that route to change tack in law. I, you know, maybe if I'd been a human rights lawyer or something like that, it might have been different. But that isn't isn't where I went. And so I just kind of moved towards medicine. And I absolutely love what I do. You know, I get to I get to just meet everyday people, you know, ordinary, real people with ordinary, real problems. And I get to help them. And I feel like when I was doing law and this isn't a criticism of lawyers across the board or lawyers particularly at all. It's just that I felt that I was kind of helping people who are already wealthy either get wealthier or stay wealthy um, and very occasionally I would act for the little person and it was then that I got a kind of a moment of thinking oh hang on a second and so now I kind of get to do that with with what I'm doing for every doctor because very often you know the the David in the equation is the is the the doctor and the Goliath is the trust that they're working for or the department of health or whatever and I get to kind of try and get involved on their on their behalf and we've had some really big wins actually you know little wins but big wins for the member um you know helping with one member who helped him to he was being denied his ill health pension and he had a young family and he was unable to work anymore and managed to get him his his full pension which you know really sort of changed things for him um you know those sorts of things you know we've had we have real moments of of kind of having a bit of a whoop whoop in the in our um virtual office when we when we managed to to get a win like that so i'm I'm glad that I did both. I'd do it exactly the same way. I'd do both again, both subjects. Um, but yeah, as my dad as, as my dad always says, he reckons I was just a bit indecisive. So <laughs> no, no, I don't run yourself down. I think you mentioned having values um, that, that you know come from your parents and, and that you yeah. now. And I think it's also that feeling of making a difference, isn't it? That that's the making a difference to ordinary people's lives. And I, I felt yeah. like in education and then now in, in, in politics and I, I think that that is the core the core purpose isn't it for anybody with yeah. a sense of conscience and those values and yeah. um, I, yeah. I just wondered um, what it's been like um, I mean obviously you've talked in, in detail about the campaign but what it's been like being in the medical profession in this period of, of Covid and I won't say it was like because I know we're still going yeah. through it yeah, yeah. like what we're told um but just if you can give us a picture of the challenges that people mm. in the medical profession have been facing yeah I mean I think initially it was just really terrifying because nobody really knew 
exactly what this virus was or what it was going to do, what it was like, what the mortality would be. And we saw all those pictures coming out of China and then coming from Italy, um, you know, kind of tent hospitals and people in coveralls and with respirators. Um, and we knew it, it was just like waiting for a tsunami to hit. We knew it was coming. We just didn't know exactly when. Um, and it was interesting because even at the start, there was this sort of disconnect between government and the actual NHS. So are we as clinicians, and I'm an anaesthetist, so we were kind of right on the front line intubating the patients in, in A&E who needed to go onto ventilators. Um, and then we all kind of pretty much got redeployed into intensive care to look after all of those patients as well. So we were saying, you know, a couple of weeks before it hit us, you need to stop, please stop doing things like elective operations and routine stuff. We need to prepare. Um, and the trust that I was working at, at the time, I, I work somewhere else now, but, but they were loath to do that. And lots and lots of other hospitals up and down the country were loath to do that. And that was really because they're under such pressure in relation to government targets and, um, you know, waiting lists and, you know, things that they've got to achieve. They really did not want to cancel things unless they absolutely had to, i.e. basically when it hit, they would stop. And it was pretty, I remember it on a Friday having a conversation with a colleague, I was on call over that weekend saying, you know, if you, if they don't stop soon, we're, you know, we're, we're really like, we're already probably pretty stuffed. But, you know, we need to be, it's going to be dangerous because we had to practice procedures like, you know, putting on PPE, intubating patients with a severe respiratory illness. You know, we hadn't really done all of that stuff on this scale before. I mean, I was around when swine flu happened. I was training then. And it was a bit, it was quite scary anyway. But the, the scale of it was, was you know, an absolute tiny fraction of what, of what we've experienced. You know, I remember there being three or four patients in an intensive care unit who were severely unwell, not... I mean, my, my hospital went from over that, that one weekend, it went from kind of controlled and actually almost empty in terms of the extra ICU capacity to looking like some sort of sci-fi horror movie. I came back the on the Monday and our recovery areas, operating theatres, they were just full of patients on ventilators. It was like finding every ventilator, every old ventilator that you could find in the entire hospital. And it was full and they were packed in. So it was scary for us. I think, I, I think for my perspective the, the the junior doctors to the trainees and also the nursing staff they were much less in control and I think I think the toll on them was huge um, I think the work they did was extraordinary um, you know as a consultant I could go into the unit do my ward round you know do my work and then come out for a bit and take a bit of a breather but they were kind of in there the whole time you know four hours at a time with particularly at the start with PPE that we didn't know either it wasn't adequate um, or it was about to run out and we didn't know when the next lot would be coming. And there were lots of lots of um, lots of nurses, but also junior doctors who didn't have the power to turn around and say, well, hang on a second. I'm not sure I'm willing to risk my life in order to go in and help save a patient's life if you haven't got the right kit. Um, you know, they're sort of, I think, in terms of the hierarchy and the power imbalance and also, you know, economically, it's much harder for them to turn around and say, no, actually, I'm, I'm you know, they, they would just say, well, we've got no choice. I'm going to have to go in. So I remember at the hospital that I was at, they ran out of gowns. So people were wearing, you know, one plastic apron on the front and then turning one around and sticking it on the back and then sort of taping it up and kind of hoping. Now, actually, subsequently, we found out, you know, maybe a year-ish down the line that 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 touch wasn't really the main way of transmission, um, that actually it's respiratory droplets and that the real thing that kept most of us safe was the proper proper masks. But even with those, we were getting to a point where we were talking about having to reuse them. Um, you know, you think, well, there's no evidence that this is safe. So I think people were terrified, really scared, um, but they absolutely kind of 
you know, put their kind of mental armour on and went in and did it. But they have been scarred massively. And particularly in relation to nurses, they've left in their droves, absolutely in their droves. Doctors, so lots of doctors have left or they've taken early retirement because they don't want to have to go through it all again. And it's exhausting. So in between the waves now, we've got the trying to catch up with the backlog. So there's been no, no let up, no respite. And I have to say, in the middle of all of that is a government that has basically said, we'll do, we'll do all the token stuff, you know, we'll make gestures. But actually, when it comes to things like nurses having to use food banks in order to be able to feed themselves and their families after they work a 60-hour week, we're not going to do anything to help with that. We're going to offer you a 1% pay rise, effectively. I think it was a 2 and a bit percent pay rise, but inflation was already one7 percent. So it's basically, uh, sorry, inflation was 3%. I think the pay rise offer was about 2%. It was effectively a 1% pay cut. Um, you know, doctors' pay in terms of inflation has dropped 20% since the, the coalition government took over in 2010. Nurses pay the same, you know, if, if, if not worse for them. You know, doctors are a little bit more insulated, or at least senior doctors are. Um, but junior doctors and nursing staff and other ancillary staff within the health service are not. And, you know, to, to, for that to be, for this to be this kind of like faux, you know, all pulling together and the nation is behind you NHS stuff from the government, when actually, when you're putting your money where your mouth is, you're really not willing to do it. And, and you you know, they're pretty, pretty weasel words that you're that you're saying. No wonder they've left you know no one wanted a bonus no one wanted to be paid extra for putting their lives at risk and going through some really traumatic stuff and seeing some awful awful things for a lot of patients you know watching some of these patients die was horrible um speaking to them you know helping them speak to their or helping their family you know see them just before they die on an ipad and then trying to comfort that family through an ipad you know for example is horrific so to then have the message be we actually we this is this is how we really value you you know we'll gesture signal um but this is how we really value uh, is, is is kind of devastating and it's not what i think the public thinks i think most of the public i don't think it was just uh, um uh, virtue signaling from from the public i think the clapping was genuine yeah. and i think all of you know, the posters that i still see around as i drive around you know thank you nhs thank you key workers i think that's real i think that's genuine i think that that's really what this country or most of this country is is about and is like but this government isn't and it's the government that's basically sent the message directly to the nhs and its staff and that message is we don't care and so the, the return message from a lot of staff is then we're off. You know, we'll take a lot. We'll do an awful lot in order to try to keep the people of this country safe. But, you know, there is a line and you've crossed it and we're going. Yeah. I think I think, um, you know, the nation as a whole um, are grateful for, for everything that the medical profession yeah. have done. That's what, we, that's what we feel and what we experience. I'm sure that it, that is true. Um, yeah. And there must have been a massive emotional toll on, you know, what's happened yeah. to you. And, and now I would imagine that lack of resilience when you've gone through it for over two years to, to actually continue uh, must, yeah. must be a major challenge. And I wonder what you think the future is for, I mean, we're trying to be optimistic here, but yeah. the future <laughs> of the NHS and with this government, but do you think they're, being frank, are there any politicians that you think are really fighting for the NHS at the moment? Um, I think on the government side, there's no one that springs to mind. And I think that's because that's not that's not their ideology. That's not their ethos. They don't believe in a not for profit system. Um, they'll use the free at the point of use line a lot. But that doesn't mean not for profit. And that's that's pretty key, I think. Um, but, you know, 
you know, one of the front runners, for example, to potentially to take over from Boris Johnson would be Jeremy Hunt, who's kind of being viewed as this, you know, almost like new conservative who might be, you know, a, a, a one that can save them. But, you know, he is no friend of the NHS. He, he you know, he co-authored, um, along with a number of other current sitting MPs and those who are involved, you know, you know, very directly in the government, he co-authored um, publications about how to privatise the NHS. You know, Boris Johnson's key health advisor is from the private healthcare sector. The previous head of NHS England came from the private healthcare sector, came from United Health, Simon Stevens from United Health in the States. They are, their, their strategy has always been, you know, or has been for a very long time to privatise the NHS. So I don't think, uh, I, I don't think that the, the, the Conservative Party has any particular commitment. The only time, and this is one of the things that we look at every doctor really carefully, the only time that that will change is if it looks like it will cost them electorally. And then, you know, and then individual MPs, and that's what part of what we've been doing and part of what we've been targeting is saying to constituents, if you believe in the NHS, and you know, more people support the NHS and support the monarchy in this country, um, you know, whatever you make of, of, of that. But, you know, so over 80 percent, 85 percent of people do not support a privatised NHS. They don't want it. And so politicians don't tell them that that's what they believe in because then it's a vote loser. So they fudge and they equivocate and they obfuscate um, and and they don't say, actually, this is what we want to do. They just hope to, to do it by stealth. And it's been happening. It's been happening since the time of Margaret Thatcher. The Blair government was complicit as well. The coalition government, the Liberal Democrats have played their part, and then the Conservatives now have played their part at every point since the 1980s. The you know the government of the day, whatever the the colour of that government, has played its part. And what I want, and what every doctor wants, is is a political party that is absolutely clear that, as I said, that access to healthcare is a fundamental and basic human right. It is not something that should be for profit. No one should be making money out of it. Um, and it should be provided by by the state. And my disappointment is that, I, I, and there's a lot about Keir Starmer that I like, and then there's some things that I'm not so keen on. And so one of the things that I was particularly happy to hear initially when he was standing as as for, for Labour leader was his stance on renationalisation um, and his approach to to that. And and um, but he's kind of turned around on that pretty quickly. Um, after getting the leadership. I know that now he and West Streeting are, they're certainly not ruling out the provision of NHS care by private providers. Um, I think that they are embracing that as a potential idea. Um, and that disappoints me greatly. And that also, it, I kind of don't really understand, because to me, it's a no brainer that you will win a huge number of votes if that's if that is your flagship policy. And so for me, if, if you give them a real offering, and actually that's what Jeremy Corbyn did, you know, in my lifetime, I have never seen scenes like Jeremy Corbyn on the election trail in Liverpool and in, you know, other, you know, other, other some, some of those rallies were quite extraordinary. You know, he was, uh, you know, I think he was done for, you know, there were some areas in relation to which I didn't agree with him, but they weren't to do with his sort of fundamental socialist policies, which I was extremely happy with. I wish we had you know, now a Labour Party led by Keir Starmer or, or AN other um, who had those policies. You know, the problem for, you know, or Jeremy Corbyn's problem was Jeremy Corbyn. It was it was the press representation of him and they demonised him and they made him sound like he was some sort of crazed, you know, communist who wanted to destroy the country when in fact that's, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. And, and interestingly, amongst the young, so I haven't got kids, but I've got nieces and nephews who are now sort of 18, 17, 16 and 13, or about to be 13. He really 
lit the touch paper with the younger people. And that's something that politicians have not really managed to do for a very long time. You know, they were sticking their heads out of windows showing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Because also they don't, they don't, they don't read the Daily Mail and they don't, you know, those aren't where they get their news sources from. That's not where they get their kind of other information from. So they weren't really privy to any of the other rubbish that was spread about him. Um, they just looked at what his policies were and thought, yeah, that, that's good for me. Now, obviously, we've completely brainwashed my nieces and nephews because that's the family that we're in and we're all socialists. <laughs> now those policies have been seen. They can't be unseen. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and the movement's not going away. And I oh. think that speaking about a movement, you know, you've just explained um, so clearly that the, the politicians aren't really generally... Um, fighting hard enough for for the NHS so a campaign like every mm. doctor and a, a people's movement as it were mm. a grassroots movement yeah. uh, this with with people who want to make a difference and want to fight yeah. fight for yeah. nature yeah that because that, I've seen right from the early days the Twitter account for instance for every doctor that started with just an appeal for this yeah. is what we want to do I saw it from like several hundred followers yeah. grow thousands yeah. after thousands yeah. hundreds of thousands now yeah hundreds of thousands which is incredible yeah. really. um so that's just one example yeah of how a campaign and I've been involved in uh, as an activist to to fight with a campaign hands off HRI in Huddersfield with oh, okay. with, uh, with with the campaigners so I, I've I've had a taster of, yeah, uh, yeah. Of, of fighting for our health services and the impact that can have in galvanizing community. Yeah, it really kind of, so one of the things that we did, that we've just done in the last kind of month or so, um, we, so about a year ago, we were kind of saying, how, how, what is it that, how do we get this message through to people? And I said, or we, not me, but you know, we all said, what if people in a particular area really understood what the extent of privatisation is in that area. So if they knew how many GP services, how much of the NHS, you know, the hospital um, service provision, um, you know, sort of community provision, what if, they, what if they knew what the PFI debt was in that area? What if there was some way of letting them know that? And out of that grew this idea of, of, of our map. So now we've got, um, through through our website, um, but it's also all over Twitter and, and, and Facebook and stuff as well, our NHS, the Every Doctor map of NHS privatisation and outsourcing. And so you can click on your area. It's done by, cons- uh, it's, I can't remember if we've done it by constituency. I think we haven't managed to do it quite by constituency. What we've done is look at the local, they're going to be called integrated care board care services so they're going to replace the old clinical commissioning groups and, and every iteration of this is basically packaging the nhs up in a way that fits with the very much american model of private of local privatization so that it's being done so that it can then eventually just be sold off and, and, and you know and it's slowly happening anyway it's happening to you know gp services and so on and so forth um so about 10 uh, the latest estimate is about the 10 percent of nhs services are provided by well are, are, so 10 is provided by either private providers or outsourced providers, non-NHS providers, of that 10%, 75% is private healthcare companies and about 25% is charities, not-for-profit companies, local community sort of benefit organisations and that sort of thing. But by far the bulk of it is by private for-profit providers. Um, And so we just kind of said, well, what if you could... Well, you could just sort of click on your area, you know, stick your postcode in and say, well, what's the situation in my area then? And so that's what we've done is, you know, it's, it's been that we, we recruited um, researchers to go through 
you, know, you go through lots and lots of lots of data, government data, individual websites of healthcare companies, and eventually collated it together and worked with this fantastic organisation called HUMAP, um, who helped us to put the data in. And we're adding to it. It's, it's an evolving thing at the moment. It's kind of almost like a living document. So, And it's just England right now. We want to do Scotland and Wales too, but we had to raise money to be able to do it because it's cost quite a lot of money to do it. But but the response to that has been massive. I mean, as soon as we as soon as it went live, we got a big response. Um, we've had lots of other people saying, "Well, hang on, there's also this company in my area that they're private too." So, oh, brilliant! Thank you. We'll add that to the map. A little bit of pushback from some organisations who don't, you know, were saying, "Oh, it's the list of shame," and we said, "It's not a list of shame. It's just." It's just a statement of the facts um, and it's important that the public knows this. And our plan is to kind of go out into those areas and um, kind of COVID, you know, obviously impacted on, on this. But we want to go out and kind of have roadshows in areas and say and meet with local people and do things like say to local businesses, do you want to be a kind of champion of the NHS, of a, of a not for profit NHS? If you do, then let's let's do something so that you can be on our map as well and then people in your area can know that you know whether it's a coffee shop or a bookshop or local grocery or whatever that you're pro nhs anti-privatization and we can we can sort of push you so that you can you know we can put you push you forward to our members and, and those who want to support an organization that has those sorts of values and that sort of ethos and wants to avoid others that don't so it's as i say it's a kind of it's a living almost breathing thing at the moment but it's what we're spending a lot of time on and it's really it's really growing um, and I'm currently working on drawing out all of the PFI data which is eye-watering um, and I mean I knew that it would be bad anyway but it's it's you know that's extraordinary. Uh, can I ask you uh, uh, in relation to that can I yeah. ask you um, is there any argument at all that private providers can be more efficient financially and in in uh, results? than um you know not for profit yeah i mean I, th- I think you can try to make the argument but i think all of the evidence suggests that it's not it's not the case and part of the reason it has to be i mean it's almost you know it's almost self-evident that if if part of what you're doing is is taking a profit off the top and distributing it to your shareholders um, if, if it's possible to make a profit like that then surely it should just be being reinvested be being reinvested, reinvested in healthcare. Um, as opposed to almost always, you know, so so most of the private healthcare providers are not registered for tax in this country. So first of all, there's no trickle down tax that's paid. So it's effectively public money allocated to the NHS that then gets paid to a private healthcare company. Um, and then usually their shareholders are also not r- resident in, in the UK. Some of them might be, but a lot of them aren't. So it's basically just leaching public money out of the country and it goes. And for example, that's what... The view of uh, when, when all this stuff started and you suddenly saw... You know, there was some private company collecting the bins from the hospital where previously yeah. they were hospital bins. Yeah. And, you, and the, the kind of feeling was, well, the hospitals can save money by using a, an efficient capitalist enterprise that's, you know, competing against another one. Therefore, it's trying harder than a few doctor, a few people in in-house who are yeah. just wandering around, waste, you know, pushing the bins as slow as they can go. I mean, that was the kind of line that they pushed. Yeah. Obviously, I totally disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. But- and, and me too. I mean, and particularly in relation to healthcare. So there are a number of things I think about, um, about healthcare and money. And I think as soon as you tie healthcare to personal financial gain, then for, for professionals, for healthcare professionals, you are on very, very dodgy ground. Now, I've had first-hand experience of this. When I was training, I, I did six months in, in um, a private ICU attached to a public hospital in Australia, in Sydney. Um, and I saw there operations performed 
that would never be performed in this country, not because we can't afford to do them, but because it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I remember saying to a number of the nurses in the ICU, I don't, I don't understand why this person has been operated. We would never operate on them in the UK. And they said, well, the surgeon gets 20,000 bucks. The anesthetist gets 5,000 bucks. There you go. And it's just, you know, and it's even, even the most honest of people, even people with, with, you know, the highest levels of integrity will still find themselves tempted and pushed and pulled. Um, and so what they do is, and it's classic along in the US, for example. So if, if you want to, as a private healthcare company, if you want to make money, you either do lots of things that you can charge for that aren't necessary, or you reduce the quality of your service, because ultimately all you're bothered about is making profit. So you make it, you know, you, the bare bones, um, but often what happens is it, it drops below the bare bones and so it's less safe. So private hospitals are undeniably less safe than NHS hospitals. I've worked in intensive care units, in NHS intensive care units, and I have admitted the disasters that have happened in a private hospital to our NHS intensive care unit because they don't know what they're doing. And, and most private hospitals, for example, so they don't do any training. They don't train anybody. You know, they, they basically leech doctors and nurses out of a publicly funded system and then they take them and they use them. So they don't, they don't train doctors and nurses at all. They, they usually don't have critical care facilities. They usually don't have um, proper emergency care facilities. Most of the doctors, not all, but most of the junior doctors who are working in a private hospital are usually doctors who can't get a training post here. Um, so they are not, and, and for some of those, you know, they're very good doctors, but they may just be moving over to this country and trying to find their feet and trying to, you know, get going in this country, but they're not on a training scheme and they don't have a training post. They're GMC registered and they're, you know, that's fine. But usually what you have is someone who's quite inexperienced within those hospitals trying to, trying to look after the patients. Um, and so that level of care is, is nothing like as good. If something goes wrong, um, and you've been treated by a consultant. The consultants are all are all doing this in their spare time, um, and so if they're then in the middle of their NHS operating list or whatever, and you're a private patient in the private hospital and you've had a complication, they're not available to do anything to help you. Um, you know, it's it's really it's much much less safe. And private hospitals hide behind commercial sensitivity um, in terms of providing transparency and letting us know about their outcomes. So NHS hospitals, we have to provide information and data about outcomes, about how patients have done, about how much it's cost, about, you know, all sorts of things. And also we're subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So if someone, member of the public wants to ask the question, then, then we have to answer the question. Private companies aren't subject to that. So insofar as they're asked a lot of questions about, say, outcomes, they'll say, oh, we can't tell you that because, um, because that's commercially sensitive and our competitors would then get inform important information about how we do business. So we, we, don't, we don't have to tell you. And they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act either. So their clinical governance and their safety are less good than the NHS. So I think throw that into the mix with the fact that the only way that you make money as a as a private healthcare provider is that you um, is that you either cut your staff, you cut their you, you cut their terms and conditions, you make them worse, so you make it cheap start cheap staffing cheaper, um, but then you get what you pay for, um, and often that's just then a very sort of demoralised workforce, or you cut your quality. But if at the end of the day your your bottom line is the bottom line, uh, which it isn't in the NHS then that that's that's what you're after you know that's what that's what you're looking at that's how you you're you're interested in making money the modern nhs is really you know we're super keen on efficiency and we work so hard often you know most clinicians and 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 
and other staff in their own time because we don't get funded for it and we don't get time for it but you know to to improve the quality of the care that we deliver to make it super efficient to you know to do as much as we possibly can of that um in a way that the private hospitals just they just don't do that. My view is that I think it's difficult to say, well, you should, you know, you should, you should make private healthcare illegal, just as it's hard to say, well, you should get rid of all private education. My own personal feeling on this has always been that I'm a socialist, not a communist. And what I believe in is, is a is a society in which all of those key public services, the things that I consider to be fundamental human rights, so that's healthcare, education, housing, access to, to justice, you know, all of those sorts of things. They should all be so good, the, the quality of those services should be so good in this country that nobody would want to go private. And that's what happens in some of the, you know, sort of Scandinavian countries where they kind of look at you and say, well, we don't really have a private education system because why would you want to? Our state education system is really, really good. So I don't want the bare minimum. Um, and also you can't have the very, 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 very best for absolutely every single person. But I, but there's a nice wodge in there of, of, of space that's available for really excellent public public service provision, transport, you know, I, I remember when, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn was campaigning and he talked about renationalizing the railways and some, you know, there was some comments in the press, like, what a crazy idea, you know, national rail, the national grid, British gas. And, you know, but I felt so old saying to my nieces and nephews and others, you know, well, that, that's how it was when I grew up. It wasn't all fragmented and it wasn't, you know, companies making billions of pounds of profit off these things it was just a national service you know there's other countries particularly in europe you know they've got that right you know t- there's a reason why some of them come high on your happiness scores however you you know however valid you think they are you know when in you know the happiest countries in which to live tend to be and i think in the top 10 it was a lot of scandinavian countries this year those sorts of countries where yeah you pay higher taxes but actually what you get for those taxes is really really good value for money and you don't have to send your kids off to private school or go get i mean i any friend who asks me about whether to have something done privately i mean i'll say always say don't because ideologically i don't agree with it but i will say to them don't because i don't think it's safe so for goodness sake, do not have anything, you know, particularly anything major, any major operation, actually even any medium sized or probably minor operation, do not have it done privately because they are about making money. They are not about necessarily delivering the very best care to you that they can. So I think it, it, what you're saying, Tom, you know, in theory, you know, I mean, that's that was something that was put forward pretty much from Thatcherite times, wasn't it? This idea that if you introduce a market and you let these kind of different public sector entities compete against each other you will get you know you'll get better efficiency and and the you know the sort of the the flab will be cut out of the system I mean I think that's self-evidentially nonsense isn't it it isn't the case it hasn't worked it still isn't working you know the worst thing that you can do for example in in healthcare where what you really want the same for education but and all you know key public services but where what you really want when you're looking after a patient is collaboration you want collaboration between Every the healthcare team that is looking after that patient, particularly where it's someone with complex needs, what you don't want is all of these people competing against each other. That's crazy. You know, it's just nonsense. So yeah, excellent. Well, there you are. <laughs> Thelma, any, anything to add? Honestly, it's been a privilege to listen to you. You started off your, your career in, in law and then in the med- medical profession, but can I recommend a third <laughs> career in politics? I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've thought about it and I do think about it. I, keep, I talk to my dad about it a lot. Um, so, But I feel like if I did it, I want to do... I think there are some really good Labour politicians. I think, you know, there are some really, really good ones and there, there are some good politicians ac- across the board. 
but I feel like I would there needs to be such fundamental change in the system and I feel like local politics is the you know helping yeah. local communities dealing with local issues you know is some is the way forward but yeah no don't worry it's kind of there I keep, I keep thinking about <laughs> it there? no no, no I'll yeah. just now I've met you Meg you're not going to get rid of me that easily <laughs> well the other thing but the other interesting thing about campaigning is because I did think about this I thought well hang on a second but you're you get sucked into party politics and you have to take party lines yeah. and that sort of thing and then and you you know you have to make sacrifices and and I thought actually one of the things that one of the many things that I really love about every doctor is that we're not, you know, we're not allied with any political party, you know. So if a sort of traditionally pro-NHS party did something that was, you know, that didn't align with what we believe is the right thing, then we would come out and criticize them. And I thought, actually, can I can I kind of be can I do more good by being a bit of an irritant to the government by campaigning? This is not a cons- I keep saying to lots so many people, and I say it on Twitter as well, this is not a conservatives with a big C country. You can see from from the numbers of the other parties that it is just not. So come together, look at what look at how much there is between Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, SNP, Plaid. Look how much there is where you've got overlap there and go with that instead of looking at what divides you. Because if you don't, then this this minority group, which is actually the Conservatives, is just going to keep going and wrecking this country. And we don't deserve it. Everybody deserves better. Yeah. We do. That's a great, great point to finish there, Meg. Thank, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Really lovely. And you. And you. Yeah. Yeah. And keep in touch. And if I change my mind on the politics, I'll, I'll, you'll be the first to know. You, uh, you certainly, certainly. And good luck with- <laughs> Cheers. Thanks ever so much. You guys take care. Lovely to meet you. Yeah. Bye. 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 Wow, that was something else, wasn't it? Listening to Meg from every doctor. What a, what a podcast that inspirational wasn't she Tom inspirational so much so much energy and so clear about so much it was really really good anyway Thelma there you are that that's this week's uh, podcast and I hope everyone enjoys listening to it and um, uh, I'll pass you over to Thelma to say her goodbyes thanks very much Tom great to see you again and I've really enjoyed the podcast uh, this week and listening to Meg I'll leave you with the words of Marcus Aurelius Emperor Marcus Aurelius, he said, waste no more time arguing about what a good man or woman should be. Be one. Solidarity.